Well, it's official. 2018 has been declared toxic. That's the opening line of a New York Times article from this last, last week that details Oxford Dictionary's word of the year. Have you seen these? The dictionaries come out with the word of the year that's supposed to um, identify. It, it reflects the ethos or the mood or the, the preoccupations of a particular year. In fact, data showed that there was a 45% increase on their website of the number of times people looked up the word toxic at OxfordDictionary.com. But not only did the frequency of the word uh, spike in 2018, the variety of the contexts and the applications proliferated. From conversations about environmental poisons to laments about today's harsh political language, the Me Too movement, the list goes on and on. Oxford said this, This year, more than ever, people have been using toxic to describe a vast array of things, situations, concerns, and events. And so we've talked about toxic works and work environments, toxic schools, toxic culture, toxic relationships, toxic stress. For this year's most talked about topics, Toxic has been the preferred prefixed descriptor. It's not news to anybody that we live in a toxic world where the poison of sin has affected everything. And that explains why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And after reading several articles uh, about Oxford's word of the year, what struck me is that nobody offered an explanation as to why or how things got so bad. It was just stated. And more importantly, nobody offered a solution, no insight into how things could get better or to how to find comfort and relief from the toxicity. Well, this morning, James gives insight. He gives insight into how we can endure suffering and not merely just endure and survive, but also find comfort. Suffering has been this theme woven throughout the letter. And at first glance, when we hear these terms, suffering and comfort, they appear to be diametrically opposed, right? How can you have comfort in suffering? True comfort seems elusive. So in your hardest times, where do you turn for comfort? We all turn to something for comfort. Do you look for escape in television and sports? Escape through food and drink? Do you find comforts in your relationships? Perhaps you find it in work. Or have you simply just given up hope and just put your head down to grind it out until the bitter end? James points to a comfort today that is based in real hope, promised by a faithful God. In our passage this morning, James 5, 7 through 12, James is going to teach us that we need patience, we need poise, and we need perspective in order to endure suffering and find true comfort. That's patience poise and perspective. Let's look at verse seven and eight as we dive into God's word. James writes this, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, remember, it's been about eight weeks ago since we started the book of James, but this is a letter written to Christians who are in the midst of some pretty heavy persecution and suffering. In fact, he calls them the dispersed. 
That's their new identity because they've been um, sent out from their homes because of suffering. And in the first few uh, uh, verses of the book, he says this in verse 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. See, as he's now bringing his letter to a close, he's kind of returning back to this theme of suffering, like a good writer kind of hitting on the final themes of his letter before he closes it out. And he speaks to how we can endure through suffering. And he says it twice, actually three times in verses 7 and 8. He says, be patient. Be patient. Now, of all the words on the short list for word of the year, patience was not one of them, right? It's almost a foreign concept in our culture. Nothing about our microwave culture conditions us to be a people of patience. Information is a click away. Like if the page doesn't load, we get frustrated and we we shut it down, right? We think something must be wrong. Someone broke the internet. Our shopping is delivered the next day. We don't even have to leave the house anymore. It's awesome. I love that. (laughs) The speed of our world has created an insatiable appetite for immediacy. And James speaks right into our whirlwind and says, be patient. Be patient. So what is patient? It's one of those words that we know, but... Because it's so lacking in our culture, I feel like we need to define it this morning. Patience is self-restraint in the midst of pressure. It's this internal fortitude. It's a capacity to withstand suffering without getting overwhelmed or frustrated. Now, patience can be strengthened when we know how long we have to endure and what happens at the end. So I'll give you an example. There's been a few times in our marriage where Andy's been able to get away without the kids and go and enjoy some time away, and I've been home with the kids by myself. Yep. In addition to a list of everything I need to know to keep them alive, I've also needed to know how long. Like, when are you going to walk back through that threshold? I need to know, like, the minute so that I can know where, when this thing is coming to an end. And see, there's a difference if I'm setting up daddy daycare for two hours or two days. The whole approach is different. The, the way I'm going to uh, go about it is going to be different. It changes how I view each moment and even how I mentally prepare to endure. And James knows that this is key. So he adds, not just be patient, but he says, be patient until... Until when? Until the coming of the Lord. This gives the readers a sense of the goal, this trajectory, this time period for patience. Be patient until what? Until the coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. James grounds our patience with this confident expectation that Jesus is coming. And when he does, he will bring an end to all oppression and make suffering a thing of the past. Jesus is the light at the end of the tunnel 
He is the reward for faithful endurance. And make no mistake about it. James is not talking about the coming of the Lord in some metaphorical sense. It's not some spiritual sense in which you'll feel the closeness of God. No, no. He uses the technical, literal term, parousia, which talks about the literal, actual, expected return of Jesus Christ. This is a comfort to those who love him and long to see him face to face. And for those who oppose him, for those who reject him, those who are maybe apathetic to him, James is giving us a warning. James is saying, you've been warned. Jesus is coming. Now for those in Christ, you will receive comfort when he comes. Those apart from Christ, you will receive judgment. See, the return of Christ is this ground wire that we need to keep us from short-circuiting and losing our patience. Jesus himself taught that his coming would be preceded by signs and that when it happened, it would be vivid, it would be visible, and it would be unmistakable. There's no way that he's coming back and you're going to be like, hey, did he come? Did I miss it? No one's going to miss that cataclysmic event. Now he talks about it's going to happen on a day that can't be known in advance. So put away your calendars. And those who in Christ will be gathered forever with him in his presence. And when he comes, the work of salvation that he began through his life and his death will be complete. Such to the point that the very presence of sin in our life will be removed as far as the east is from the west. You will feel fully alive for the first time in your life. And we, and, and J, uh, uh, even in 1 John, it says that we will be like Christ because we'll see him as he truly is. There's something powerful about when we finally get to behold him, when we get to see him, that the power of the resurrection will transform us and we will be like him because we'll finally see him in all his truth and all his beauty and all his goodness. That's the hope. That's the comfort. That's what enables us to have steel in our backs determination at our feet, and courage in our hearts to endure. For the Lord himself, King Jesus, will come in power. He'll conquer his enemies, and the heavens and the earth will be remade, restored, renewed, and redeemed in such a way that you will hardly recognize it. When sin is gone, this place is going to shine. And we will dwell with the Lord, and we will enjoy his kingdom forever. That's why James says this day is at hand. It is your hope. It is the anchor and it can happen any minute. James lived his life on the edge with this thought that it could happen any minute. I guarantee you he probably thought it would happen in his lifetime. Now some have wondered if he thought it was going to happen in his lifetime, did James get it wrong? I don't think he got it wrong. I think he got it right. See, the point of this passage is not to figure out the date, the timeline, exactly when he's coming, but to be faithful in the everyday stuff of life so that you're ready at any moment when he does come. See, God operates on a different timetable than we do. When when Jesus said it's coming at hand, we think right now. Why? Because we're impatient. We think we want things to happen immediately. But God operates on a different timetable than we do. In C.S. Lewis's classic work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, maybe you've seen the movies of the, of the Chronicles of Narnia. The book's better than the movie. 
the children enter Narnia through the wardrobe, right? And they engage what amounts to be years of life. They enter in as children, and when they finally leave, they're grown adults. I mean, Peter's grown a beard. They've grown up. They're the the kings and queens of Narnia. But when they go back through the wardrobe and topple in, they realize not even a moment has really passed back in the real world. They're children again. And the the group of people that were trying to find them bust into the door. It's like nothing had even happened. He is not slow to act. It's just that his time scales, his timetable is different than ours. And in fact, what might seem like a delay to us is actually the Lord's kindness to extend more time for people to receive his grace. Skeptics will scoff. Haters gonna hate, but the day will come. And right now we know everything we need to know between now and then. And James says we are to live with a sense of readiness, an alertness. All the commands and instructions about his return direct us towards holy living, expectant living with a faithfulness to his mission to uh, to make disciples. There's not one single command in scripture to make a chart, to predict the date, to make predictions, but we're supposed to live with established and firm hearts with an expectant readiness that the judge is standing at the door and he could enter in at any moment. James says, wait for this day, long for this day, be patient for this day like the farmer who waits for the harvest. What do farmers do? They sow an expectation, right? They put seed in the ground expecting it's going to grow and they actually anticipate the harvest, right? And he's patient. He's patient for the early rains in October which will prepare the soil for the seed so that the process of germination can begin. And he longs and he hopes for the the late rains of March and April so that the grains will swell that lead to a good harvest. During that time, the farmer is diligent to pull weeds and protect tiny sprouts from being plucked up by pests. And when the time comes, at the appointed time, the farmer harvests and enjoys the fruit of his labor. Imagine if the farmer was impatient, digging up the soil to check on the seed, right? Looking in like, what's happening down there? It would mess it all up. Or imagine harvesting before it's ripe. You destroy the fruit. No, the farmer has to be patient, planting seeds at the appointed time, in the appointed conditions, and by the appointed methods. And then the farmer waits. He has to. You can't make it rain early. You can't bring the rain. You cannot make it rain no matter how much you dance. Nothing can speed it up. Being impatient Being anxious, worrying, these do nothing to make it rain. The Lord is going to come at his appointed time. Not early, not late, right on time. See, patience is not a passive thing. It's an active, determined decision in the heart. Just like the farmer tends to the field with care to keep weeds at bay, to remove pests from ravaging, we are to establish 
our hearts. We have to make a decision to be patient. We need a fixed heart. That means unwavering determination, steely resolution, and a gritty persistence. That's why James says, not just be patient, but establish your heart. Make a decision. When you establish something, there's a lot of decisions that go into it, right? It's the word that James, or that Jesus, uh, that Luke uses of Jesus when it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. There's this moment in the book where everything starts to point towards Jerusalem. It says he established his face. He, he set his face. He determined, he pointed his body to go towards Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew he was going to suffer and die on the cross. He knew what lie ahead, but he set his face. He established his heart to go into Jerusalem for the final time. Did you notice that James is, is comparing the fattened heart in our previous sermon, the one that is fattened on indulgence and comfort versus the fixed heart, right? You can either fatten your heart and live in, in comfort and pleasure, or you can have a fixed, established, ready heart that's looking for Christ, that's anchored in him. James is saying if you're going to endure it won't come through a life of comfortable indulgence, but by a gospel-anchored patience. Jesus is coming, friends. And when he does, all will be made right. That is comfort, and it should compel us to endure with patience. Now he goes further and says, in addition to patience, we need poise. Look with me at verse 9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, before we dig into this text, let me define what I mean by poise. Poise is composure, it's balance, it's presence in the midst of tension. See, patience is more of this internal fortitude that remains steadfast. It's this capacity to handle stress. It's how you experience yourself. Poise is more of that external reality. It's how you present yourself to someone else. It's how someone else experiences you. Po patience is the internal experience, and, and poise is how people are experiencing you. That's why we'll say, oh, they've lost their, their poise, right? They've lost their great way. I'm experiencing them in an overwhelmed and frustrated kind of way. In the midst of suffering and frustration and insecurity, as that pain uh, builds, the, tempta the temptation is to find comfort and relief through uh, releasing our stress, letting it out, kind of blowing up. Now, since this often happens through our words, James gives two examples. He's going to talk about grumbling and oath-taking. Have you noticed throughout this series that James has a lot to say about our words? Seems like every other chapter he's talking about our words. He's talked about the importance and the difficulty of taming the tongue. He's addressed how we often unfairly judge people and how ultimately our words reveal our true character and show what's going on inside of our hearts. It's like what James' big brother Jesus said in the Gospels. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why James cares so much about our words because our words reveal more of what's inside of our hearts than we'd often like to admit. So in verse 9, he talks about this sin of grumbling. I love that word. It's one of those words that sounds like what it is, 
grumbling. It's one of those words where, you know, things aren't going our way and we start to murmur, right? And that builds into a rumble and that gives way to the grumble. And that leads to disputes. And our impatience and our lack of poise can lead to fighting and infighting inside of the community. And as sin would have it, we typically grumble and complain to who? Those closest to us, right? It's awful. Like the people who we should be loving the most, we grumble toward, even if they're not the ones causing the pain. It breeds bitterness. It creates a toxic environment. And we vent the pressure from stressful work environments. We talk about people who aren't living up to our standards behind their backs. We complain about God, that he's not simply meeting our expectations. And the temptation of grumbling, complaining, is that if I do this, I'll find some comfort. I'll finally get some release. I'll I'll be able to just get it out and then I'll feel better now. But that's settling for a false comfort. And it actually doesn't solve your problem. It just leads to more and more bitterness, more suffering. See, to maintain poise, you have to be proactive. You have to learn how to process your emotions. You have to grow to be emotionally healthy so that you don't lash out and grumble, but that you process the problems and the pressure. When the pressure rises, the temptation will always be to vent, to let it out. In the midst of this, he does something interesting here. He returns back to this theme of the return of Christ. He can't get away from it. He says, don't grumble. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. Communicates the reality that he can come through that door at any moment. So like we said earlier, we're supposed to live with a sense of readiness. Living by his commands. So for the believer, the coming judge should not lead to terror. So if you're in Christ today, you can face the judgment. You can face Jesus when he comes without fear. Here's why. For the believer in Christ, our sentence has been vacated. To borrow from some judicial language, a vacated judgment is a judgment that's been overturned and overruled by a higher court. See, you have a previous verdict of guilty, but it's been overturned and overruled by a higher judge in light of new evidence. And for the believer in Christ, we had a verdict of guilty. But now our sins have been paid for, our shame has been covered, and our guilt has been removed. And so in light of this new evidence, the supreme judge looks at us and says, not guilty. Your sentence is vacated. See, for the believer, meeting the judge is not about condemnation, but it's about commendation. Not disapproval, but approval. Not judgment, but mercy. Not rejection, but love. Not dismay, but delight. Now, that doesn't mean we should be carefree or careless about the coming judgment. We're going to face Christ, and we will give an account for our lives. We will see our sin fully. And we will finally understand the fullness and the depth and the reality of the cost that was paid for us by Jesus Christ. And in light of that, that should propel us to live lives of humble obedience, joyful submission, and an eager desire to bring glory to God. But his grace is so profound that even in our judgment, we have nothing to fear. 
We almost don't even have a, have a category for a fearless judgment. But that's what grace does. Now, on the other hand, for the non-believer, the judge standing at the door should be terrifying. Because you're going to have to account for your life. So on what grounds will you be acquitted? When you're given a, a time to talk and say, here's why you should pardon me, what will you say? Will you say, hey, I tried really hard. I did my best. I think I might have even done some good things too. Now those are all fine and good motivations, but none of those things pay for sin. None of those things will cleanse you. None of those things will remove the guilt. None of them cover your shame. And I would even add, if you tried those in court today, would any of them actually work? If you were guilty of crimes committed, could you stand before the judge and say, hey, I tried? No. He'd say, I'm glad you tried, but you failed. You have to face judgment. That's just common sense justice. And if it works in lesser courts, how will that ever work in the higher court of God? For anyone apart from Christ, you need to know this. You do not have to face that judgment alone. You can have your verdict overturned and overruled, and you can have your sentence vacated. You don't have to do it on your own. You can come to Christ today, even now, in repentance. James said earlier in his letter that God gives more grace. He's saying that God gives grace to those who acknowledge their sin and ask for forgiveness. It really is just that simple. James is really clear. He says the judge is standing at the door. He's going to come in. Before he enters as judge, know him as your savior. That's his grace and it's offered to us right now. He will be your savior. He will be your advocate. And that's how you can survive knowing him as judge. Look with me at verse 12. Skip down. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now James addresses another careless way that we use our words. Now swearing here is not talking about swear words and coarse words and vulgar words, but he, he's talking about when we invoke the name of God to kind of bolster the reliability of our speech. It's almost like using God's name like duct tape to hold our, our stuff together. That's not what he's talking about. He's, not talking, he's saying, don't do that. You don't need reinforcement for your words. Or he's saying sometimes we can um, add these oaths to make these careless, haphazard uh, 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 promises to God to kind of manipulate a situation. So it'll look something like this. We'll be in the thick of it and we'll say, God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I'll never sin again. Anyone made that promise? I have, right? Or God, I promise we get through this one, I'll start going to church. Right? That's what he's taught. Right? Every, we've all made those things. We've all said those things. James is saying, you're trying to manipulate the situation. You're trying to like offer this, 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 this thing to God. Man, man, if you'll do this, I promise, man, I'll, I'll change the way I live my You're not even thinking about it. It's careless. It's in the moment. And James is saying, don't play fast and loose with your words. 
They matter. He's not saying there's never a time when you should make an oath. There are times when you should take oaths. But he's saying be careful when you do. It's important to be thoughtful and wise about the things that we say that we're going to do. You don't need to reinforce your words with duct tape and by calling on heaven. He's saying just be a person of integrity whose words matter. When you say you're going to do something, do it. When you say you're not going to do something, don't do it. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. He's have the kind of reputation where people say she is a woman of her word. He is a man of his word. See, James again encourages us to have an inner patience and an outer poise with our words. Our words matter, and we should use them carefully, not out of exasperation. Carelessly making promises to God and to others does not reveal a heart that is established and firm. James wants us to know that an unguarded tongue is a threat to a life, to a life of patience and poise as we seek to endure suffering and trials. So when we grumble, we're finding comfort in releasing the stress instead of healthily processing and resolving that stress. When we carelessly make oaths, it says our comfort comes in this desire to control and manipulate. But none of those things will lead to comfort. So far, James has said we need to be people of patience and poise. Let's look at the last couple verses as he talks about where, what, the kind of perspective that we need um, to have um, comfort in our suffering. Look back with me at verse 10. So he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James tells us, consider the prophets as our example to inform our perspective on suffering. Now the prophets, if you go back through the Old Testament, were these highly privileged, favored uh, people who had this intimate relationship with God. They were literally God's mouthpiece to deliver his message. And you might think that their position and uh, privilege exempted them from a life of suffering, right? The reality is no. If you go back and read through their lives, they intersected with immense suffering. Their position and status did not exempt them from suffering. So let me give you a couple examples. Take the prophet Jeremiah. He suffered at the hands of pagan kings, and he was even hunted by his own people to try to shut him up from declaring, the, uh, declaring his ministry and the words of God. Ezekiel, the prophet, was, uh, he saw the destruction of his hometown in Jerusalem, was deported to Babylon, was forced to live in exile, and the only comfort that he had leaving was his wife. And on the way, she dies. And he lives the rest of his life alone as he walks in the, in the final days of his ministry. Daniel, deported from his home, and even though he walked in righteousness and tried to seek the good of his city, his new city of Babylon, conspirators worked against him to try to have him killed. History tells us that the prophet Isaiah was martyred and sawed in half. James calls our attention to some of the most faithful people in all of Scripture. They faithfully served the Lord, and none of them were exempt from suffering. Now that seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? We just think, man, if you live faithfully, things should work out for you. We think if I live a good life, then I shouldn't have to suffer. If I don't break the big rules and I try my best to do good, 
I should expect in, in reward for that a life of blessing and fulfillment. It's just kind of woven into the fabric of our culture. And James confronts us and basically says, hey, where did you learn that? Where did you come up with that idea? Because you didn't learn it from the Bible. Scripture details the faithful lives of godly men and women who experience suffering and hardship in our broken world. Now, depending on your worldview and your background, maybe the way that you were brought up, you're going to have a perspective as it relates to suffering. So I'll give you a couple of examples. If you grew up in an atheistic household, maybe you have an atheistic perspective coming in today, which basically in its, in its uh, shortest way is you deny the existence of a divine being and you conclude that the material world is all there is. That's, it's, it's got nuance, but that's the basic idea. If that's you today, then you have to conclude like Nietzsche that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Survival is for the fittest and for those who don't whine about it. There's only life and death. What's all this talk about suffering? Get over it. Move on. For the agnostic or spiritual seeker, you know that something isn't right in the world, but you don't really have a clearly defined answer as to what it is, how it went wrong, how it'll ever get better, or why it's even wrong in the first place. For those who believe in reincarnation, buckle up. You experience suffering now, more is on the way, and it may never end. You can possibly hope for a better life next time, but chances are you will continue to be stuck in a cycle of repetition and suffering. And if, as if one life of suffering weren't enough, you could die and come back again and go through another round of it. And if you do happen to get it all and reach nirvana, you basically become non-existent and become absorbed into reality. You lose all sense of your identity. If you believe in karma, this one's kind of my favorite. You know who you have to blame for suffering? You. You get what you deserve. If you're suffering, it's your fault. You did something to deserve this, and the universe is balancing out the scales and giving you your just desserts. It has this way of victimizing victims, doesn't it? It's awful. And again, no plan of redemption either. James offers us a different perspective. He says, yes, suffering is a part of this life now. For the righteous and the unrighteous, we will suffer because we live in a fallen world. Where does it come from? It comes from a fallen world. For the believer in Christ, we have an origin story for sin and suffering. But... The believer can take heart. The believer can patiently endure with poise and patience because God is on the move. He's working even if we can't see all that he's doing to bring oppression and suffering to an end. That's the perspective that gives us a vision for the road ahead. And not only will one day suffering come to an end, for the believer, James tells us, our suffering is not purposeless or meaningless. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those, who, uh, those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So not only do we need a perspective with a vision for the road ahead that it's going to end, we need to know what to expect. We need to know that our suffering is not in vain, that there's a purpose behind it. 
There's a purpose to our suffering that James talked about in chapter 1 that, that perfects and matures our faith. We read it earlier, right? He said the fires of suffering actually work to make our faith shine like pure gold. And to make his point, he brings up Job. You remember Job? It says the Bible says at his time he was the most upright and righteous man of his day. And Satan comes to God and says, yeah, you think Job's great? You know the only reason he follows you and worships you and loves you? Because Job has had a blessed and easy life. I bet if you gave him an ounce of suffering, he would curse you and renounce you and turn away. And so God allows Satan to bring horrific suffering into his life to test and mature Job's faith. And as he suffers, Job questions, he doubts, he wrestles, he struggles. He has some of the darkest days of doubt that he has ever experienced. But the flame of his faith never goes extinguished. Job never gets insight. He never, he never is privy to this insider meeting that God had with Satan. He just knows one day things went crazy. He never gets insight as to why this is happening. But what he does get is a bigger view of God, a more complex view of God. Job 42 verse 5 says this. Look what he says. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. He followed God. He knew who God was. He, he had some ideas about God. But now through the fire of suffering, he says, I see you now in a different way. Job sees that God is worth following, not because of all he gave him, but simply because of who God is. James says that he saw that God was compassionate and merciful. At the end of his suffering, when he finally saw God for who he is, despite all of it, he didn't conclude God you are a psychopathic jerk that should be rejected. No. He says, my eyes have seen you. I see you for who you really are. And you are a God of compassion and mercy. Now you have to realize God was in sovereign control the whole time. He even used the evil of Satan to bring Job to a greater place of dependence and love for God all through his surfing. A suffering. And I know it's counterintuitive, but those who endure suffering are actually blessed. He says those who endure are actually blessed. And it's the perspective that you need to endure suffering this morning. You see, those who endure suffering, who come out on the other end, are more refined and pure than when they went in. Now, blessing and blessedness does not mean happiness. It means to flourish and thrive. Happiness is based on the current state of your emotions in light of your circumstances. That's what happiness is. That's why it changes so often. But James is saying you may not be happy, but if you endure suffering, you will be blessed. It will produce a flourishing and a thriving in your life that's more deep and more fulfilling than happiness. Your connection and relationship to God will grow. You'll get out of the kiddie pool and you'll finally start to swim in the deep end. You'll come to find contentment and fulfillment not based on your relationship to your circumstances, but you'll find contentment and fulfillment in your relationship with God. 
Jonathan Haidt, who's a psychology professor at NYU. He's not a Christian. Um, He wrote this in his best-selling book, The Happiness Hypothesis. He said, people need adversity, setbacks, perhaps even trauma to reach the highest levels of strength, fulfillment, and personal development. You know what I find fascinating about that? He's got no skin in the Christian game whatsoever. Yet after all of his research at looking at what brings about true happiness in people's life, he says suffering is actually a part of the formula. I can't explain it, but I know it's part of the formula that leads to a deeper sense of fulfillment. In the same book, he talks about his friend Greg who experienced a Job-like chapter in his life. He came home one day to find out that his wife had left him for a man out of, a blue, out of the blue for a guy she met at the mall a few weeks earlier. And to make matters worse, she took the kids with her. Turns out that she had actually been duped by a con artist. And there were weeks where he didn't even know where his family was. And to make a really long, sad story short, the divorce was ugly. The custody battle was intense. And he struggled for a long season of time to make ends meet both financially and emotionally. Jonathan, who's a close friend of his, went to meet him several months after the incident happened. At this time, things were still uncertain. Emotions were still raw. But he said that in the midst of his suffering, Greg um, had started to come out. That the church had rallied around him. They provided spiritual support and friendship. Greg had started to press into the Lord in a deeper way. And in the midst of that conversation, Jonathan Haidt writes in his book that Greg said something that made him begin to cry. Greg said, you know how in the middle of an opera, there's that crucial scene, that scene, the song. It's called the aria. He said, it's that sad and moving solo where the main character turns their sorrow into something beautiful. Greg said, this is my moment to sing the aria. I don't want to. I don't want to have this chance, but it's here now. And what am I going to do about it? Am I going to rise to the occasion? See, instead of succumbing to post-traumatic stress, Height says Greg leaned into the suffering with his faith and actually experienced post-traumatic growth. He grew. He became a new man. There's purpose in what seems purposeless. God is compassionate and merciful. Even when you can't see what he's doing, he is moving and directing you down a path that you on your own would never choose. But he's doing so to take you to a place that you have to go to get you to a place that you will become a deeper, more fulfilled, more stable, total person. He's taking you to a place so that his purposes for your life will be complete. And when you adopt that perspective in the midst of your suffering, when you realize that God has a purpose in it, it will give you a vision and a fortitude for the road ahead. It will give you all of the insight you need to be patient and respond to suffering with poise. Now James told us, look at the prophet's for our example of suffering and patience. And every single prophet points to the prophet, Jesus Christ, as the ultimate example of suffering and patience. 
You see, Jesus, he didn't just live a good life. He lived the perfect life. His suffering was the only, he was the only truly innocent sufferer who's ever suffered. And he never wavered and he never forgot. The whole reason he lived was so that, that he would suffer and die for the sins of many. He remained steadfast even though he was innocent. I mean, he could have spoken a word on the cross and called a legion of angels, not just to get him off the cross, but to defeat and destroy the entire Roman Empire and to establish his kingdom right then and there. But he didn't. He remained poised. Instead of reviling and slandering those who insulted him, those who falsely accused him, he quietly whispered to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He never lost sight of his Godward perspective. He had set and determined his face towards Jerusalem. He was determined to do the thing that he came to do. He endured the shame and the pain of the cross because he knew that in his humiliation, he would be lifted up. And not only would he be lifted up, but every one of us in Christ would be lifted up as well. He is all the proof you need to know that God is by his very nature compassionate and merciful. Christ suffered and endured to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that our suffering is not senseless, that he has a purpose and he's working it out for our good and his glory. He will transform our trauma into glory. Let that perspective give you vision this morning. Let that perspective give you comfort as we patiently endure and live our lives for the glory of God. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And it's all we need.